Welcome everyone to episode 109, Cilia and RPE. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. Before we get going today, we are, aren't you, Dalen? I'm so psyched. I'm psyched. We are excited to announce the launch of our new logo and website design. Woo! You can go look at it at stemcellpodcast.com. That's stemcellpodcast.com. And the new website, it features a simple layout with super easy to find the content that you want to find, episode summaries, including the guest biographies, links to resources discussed in the episodes, ability to search for topics and to sort episodes by key areas. So if you're looking for information about something, something <laughs> you can put it in and search for it. That was just a brain fart there. Anyway, <laughs> also the ability to stream episodes online, plus links for subscribing through iTunes or Stitcher subscription, or you can have a subscription for the podcast newsletter. And this alerts you to when a new episode is out and gives links to all of the resources discussed in the episode. There's a list of other resources for great information on stem cells and other science communication channels. This sounds like it's a just fabulous new look and new life for the Stem Cell Podcast website. It's a real bonanza. I can't wait. I mean, I've seen it. I've had a look. But now there's so much there. I feel like I want to dig in, spend some time listening to my own voice. You know what I'm saying? The only thing I, I could <laughs> I don't do that. say, if I had to criticize... There could be some more headshots of yours, truly, is all I'm saying. I mean, I'm not a terrible-looking dude. And Kiki, you're beautiful. Get her face up on that website. That's right. More pictures of the hosts. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we need, guys. We need more pictures yeah. of us. Right? Right? Right in. Right in, and, and I'll send you a JPEG. <laughs> Digitally signed. Okay, time to get down to business, everyone. We told you about the website, stemcellpodcast.com, right? You can subscribe to our newsletter there, and you can also find all of our episodes and other resources. But don't forget, also, you can follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and subscribe, subscribe, subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher so that you can get those new episodes automatically downloaded to your phone. Today, we have a really great show. We're going to discuss a recently published paper. We talked about it on last episode. It provides insight into the role of cilia on the RPE, the retinal pigment epithelia in the back of the eye, and how this might affect blinding disorders with Dr. Kapil Barty. But before we do that, let's round it up, shall we, Dalen? Yes, but not yet. Before we do that... I got to tell you guys, Stem Cell Technologies is putting themselves up for peer review. Can you believe this? Let me elaborate. So we've talked about before as part of their mission to support scientists and scientific progress. In addition to their cell culture and cell isolation products used at the bench, Stem Cell offers several science communication services, such as the Connexon newsletters that we talk about, that we tell our listeners about all the time, as well as this podcast that we're doing right now. But does that mean that they're actually scientists helping scientists like they claim to be? Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, they want you to tell them, okay, guys, stem cell technology is looking for scientists to peer review them. If you're skeptical, 
If you're a curious scientist who's comfortable on camera and wants a free trip to Vancouver, hello, in April, this is for you. And if you're chosen for this, by the way, you're going to be flown to Stem Cells Tech headquarters in Vancouver, Canada, which is beautiful. Kiki, you were there a couple months I ago, I was right? there in September, and it is oh. absolutely beautiful. April probably will prove to be a gorgeous time of year, springtime on the west coast of North America, right? Oh, my. Yeah, Vancouver is absolutely beautiful with the, the bays and the mountains, and it's a very artistic and vibrant city. So there's a lot to be seen there scientifically, culturally. I don't know. I had a really good time, really enjoyed my visit to Stem Cells headquarters. They're wonderful people from my getting to meet them. I had a wonderful time getting to meet everyone there. So I hope other people would enjoy it also. I mean, they would, yeah. they would for sure. But you know, you got to enter. And if you're chosen, you know, you're going to, we're going to fly you over there. You're going to Vancouver. And you're going to meet the stem cell team and CEO, Dr. Alan Eves. We talked to him on the show. He's such a delightful guy. You talk to him in person. He He's such a cool, yep. amazing, inspirational scientist. Thoughtful. You can see the facilities. You're going to experience the company's whole way of being, their philosophy. And your job is to use your scientific training and expertise to peer review stem cell and determine whether they're really scientists helping scientists. And hey, if you're like me, when you get something to review, you're so demoralized. You just crush it. <laughs> My life is so hard. I'm going to ruin someone else's. <laughs> yes. So schadenfreude for stem cell. If you're a real scientist out there, you'll crush them and then oh, give them something to answer for. Apply now at www.stemcell.com slash scientists dash helping dash scientists. All right. And now without further ado, we're going to round up the news stories. Kiki, please. Oh, yeah. We're getting into it after this pregnant pause. Well, my first story is about childbirth. So what happens after that pregnant pause? Childbirth. That's what happens. Oh. But sometimes childbirth might take a little bit longer than Western doctors, specifically those in the United States, think or want it to. So unless you are scheduled to have a C-section at a very specific date and time, you know, you're probably going to have a vaginal birth. And there is an expectation by modern science, modern medicine, for how fast that process progresses. And for decades, the guidance has been that the cervix should dilate by at least one centimeter an hour. But, you know, researchers were like, is this really true? Is that really the way it's supposed to happen? So publishing in PLOS Medicine, there was a look at two African countries. They found a slower rate of dilation for women who went on to have healthy vaginal births. The new study reinforces other findings from recent research on pregnant women that has taken place in the United States, Japan, and various other countries. However, even though this research is suggesting that a slower than one centimeter per hour cervix dilation rate is fine. There's a lot of doctors who are like, that's too slow. It's abnormal. Let's intervene. Let's put some Pitocin in there. Let's give you a C-section. Yeah. Well, for this study, Olufemi Oladapo, a medical officer in the Department of Reproductive Health and Research at the World Health Organization and the colleagues, 
gathered data on over 5,500 laboring women. So this isn't just a small study. This is a fairly large study. These women were admitted to 13 hospitals in Nigeria and Uganda, and they'd all gone into labor naturally, had been pregnant with single babies, positioned headfirst, and they had healthy vaginal births. For both first-time mothers and those who had birthed previously, it often took a lot longer than one hour for the cervix to dilate by one centimeter, and dilation was slower until the cervix had expanded to five centimeters, and that's when it sped up. So some first-time mothers had their cervix expand from four to five centimeters within two hours, and in others, it took up to seven hours. Oldavo says that there are several aspects to labor progression, and cervical dilation is just one of them. And as long as the vital signs of mom and baby are fine and the head is descending, there's really no reason to intervene. It is uh, suggested, then, that clinicians should support the laboring woman by providing food, drink, pain relief, and the freedom to move and find a position to be comfortable. There is another report from 2014 that suggests similar advice to prevent unnecessary C-sections. And so now researchers are calling for new standards of care in order to keep from having too many C-sections. C-section delivery rate has declined slightly among women from 26% in 2014 to 25.8% in 2015. But co-author Coffey says, my sense is that there have been some changes in how physicians approach the progression of labor, but I think there is still great heterogeneity in practice in the United States. And I think that's the big issue is that heterogeneity is not what you want to be doing. can be good. America, good heterogeneous. Mm. Heterogeneity in clinical practice, maybe not so good. You know, I think part of it is that birthing babies is kind of like in these big hospitals, it's kind of like a commercial enterprise. You know, it's like get them in, get them out, get them in, get them out. So clearly that has a large role to play here is just the general pressure to clear the beds. So... You're taking too long. Time for a C-section. Exactly. (laughs) Meanwhile, if it were my cervix, I would be like, let's take it easy. Let's take it slow. Okay? Do we really need to rush this? Yeah. Yeah, come on. Yeah. Something that people do not want to rush is aging, right? We want to maintain our youth for as long as possible. Well, researchers publishing January 3rd at the BioArchive bioarchive.org, is a preliminary study looking at a protein called VCAM1. And this is a protein located in the cells that form the blood-brain barrier. And there's question of how old blood can prematurely age the brains of young mice, right? Previous research has shown that If you transfuse old blood into young mice, suddenly young mice start acting old. They start getting uh, the problems of aging. And so the question is, how is that happening, right? If you're transfusing the blood in, shouldn't the blood-brain barrier be doing a job to protect the young brain and keep it from aging? Well, scientists are saying that if something similar happens in humans, methods for countering this protein might hold promise for treating age-related brain decline. 
this VCAM1 interacts with immune cells in response to inflammation. And levels of this protein in the blood go up as you get older. After injecting young mice behind an eye with plasma from old mice, I mean, this does not sound like something I want done to me. <laughs> but this is, this is why we have mice, right? <laughs> the team discovered that VCAM1 levels also rose in certain parts of the blood-brain barrier. So it's not just in the blood, it's in the affecting the blood-brain barrier. And the young mice started showing signs of brain deterioration, including inflammation and decreased birth rates of new nerve cells. Plasma from young mice had no effects like this whatsoever. And so researchers are suggesting that interfering with VCAM1 may help prevent the premature aging of brains. Question is, you know, is there a way to block the activity of VCAM1? Researchers genetically engineered mice to lack VCAM1 in certain blood-brain barrier cells, and the plasma from old mice didn't have a strong effect on those mice. It didn't affect also mice treated with antibodies that block the activity of VCAM1. So those antibodies are potentially helping the brains of older mice that had aged naturally. This all suggests that anti-aging treatments targeting proteins like this that are specifically integrated into the blood-brain barrier might be an area of promise for that fountain of youth effect we're looking for. Or at least maybe to stop early onset diseases like Alzheimer's, dementia, et cetera, that are deteriorating the brain prematurely. Yeah, not the first Dracula story we've told here. Uh, no. But I think what's good about this one is that a lot of these stories are like, oh, we put the old blood into the young, we put the young into the old, and there's a phenotype. They're here, they're kind of delving into the mechanism, showing with these blocking antibodies and the knockout mice that really may be mediated by this specific molecule. We need more studies like this so that we can find a real justification for taking young people's blood. That's right. We can't just take young people's blood. We can't just take it. Can't just take it. It tastes good. Moving on from blood to, oh, it's winter. How about some strep infection? Strep throat. Nobody likes that. It's no fun. And some people infected with strep bacteria, they could just get that sore throat, but others it might turn into an, a life-threatening blood infection. So why is there a difference between how people are affected by strep? Well, turns out that it's possible that extra genes picked up by some pathogens can cause different strains to have wildly different effects on the immune system, even in the same person. This is reported in the January 11th PLOS Pathogens. Any species of bacteria has a set of genes that all of the members share. And then there are genes that different strains of the species get to kind of pick and choose. And this is called the accessory genome. And these genes are custom add-ons that specific strains have acquired, either from their environment or from other microbes. And this extra genetic material gives the bacteria new traits that allow it to thrive in certain environments. Researchers at the Rockefeller University in New York City looked at the way these accessory genes influence Staphylococcus aureus and Streptococcus pyogenes and how these bacteria interact with the immune system. 
staph can cause rashes to food poisoning to blood infections, and strep can cause a sore throat all the way to blood infections as well. And they found that different strains of the same species caused different immune responses in blood samples collected from the same patient. So the strain-specific responses were consistent across patients. So some strains triggered T-cells to be made in every sample, and others increased B-cell activity. In tests of strains missing some of their extra genes, the T-cells didn't respond as strongly as they did to a matching strain that contained the extra genes. So this all suggests that the variation in immune response comes in part from these accessory or supplementary genes. The researchers say currently when a patient comes to the hospital with an infection, we don't define the strain of the species, just the species for infections like strep and staph. And this kind of information could actually help predict how an illness is going to end up turning out and could potentially help doctors decide on the right treatment for that particular strain. So even though this accessory genome helps these different strains survive, it affects us slightly differently, and we need to take that into account. Man, I hate strep. My kid has it right now. Oh, no. Yeah, it's so sad. The little one, too. You know, little kids, when they get sick, they don't even know what's going on. They just look at you with those big doe eyes. It makes me so sad. <laughs> and you're like, here, take these antibiotics yeah, here, that may or this. may not work. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I hope that strep goes away quickly. That's no fun. Yeah, well, no you know, a few hard knocks never killed anybody. <laughs> Well, it's something that we've had to kill people and animals for historically to look at in science is the brain, right? It's really mm, hard yeah. to get a real view of the brain. I mean, we've got fMRI and MRI and EEG and all this stuff, but really looking at the brain, you know, you have to take it out of a head. <laughs> but not anymore. Not anymore. Brainfacts.org has launched an interactive 3D brain. And if you go to their website, this is sponsored by the Society of Neuroscience and other brain-related organizations. If you go to brainfacts.org and look for this interactive 3D brain, you will find a translucent light pink brain rotating in the middle of your screen. And then you can highlight and isolate different parts of the brain to take a look at them. You get text box overlays that pop up to let you know what the structure's names are, details about the structure's function. There are write-ups that describe how a structure got its name. So a little bit of history in there, nomenclature and etymology, I guess, and how researchers figured out what it does. Scientists have learned a lot about brain function by studying people who have localized brain damage, for instance. You can use your mouse to click and drag and rotate the brain. And I guess if you're looking at it on your phone, use your finger to click and drag and rotate the brain. And you can get high resolution, big picture views of a region's connectivity to the rest of the brain. And you can navigate to particular structures to get more context about the brain's anatomy. The menu outlines that the limbic system contains the entorhinal cortex, amygdala, and hippocampus. And the hippocampus is further composed of the sabiculum and dentate gyrus. So there is so much brain fun to be had. Who knew about the subiculum? Never heard subiculum. of that one. Subiculum. We're making a lot of progress on the brain here. Everyone's going crazy about the brain. My bet, though, Keek, I'm putting it out there, 25 years from now, it'll 
totally be a total mystery, just like now. Maybe it's we'll know total a couple more things. mystery. That's right. Yeah, totally unknown. But you know, at least you can, if you want to get a look inside ahead. Best not to look inside my head. Look at look at these brains. <laughs> You'll get some. It'll be much prettier. But I think we're going to take a look inside my head right now, at least, and, and with respect to my interests in the stem cell field and my stories. Kiki, can I get on? Yes, please. Tell me what is in your head. What are you oh thinking about God. today? You don't want to know, but I'll tell you some <laughs> few little, little tidbits. I got kind of East Coast, West Coast thing here. It's about stem cells, and it's about uh, blood, it's about CRISPR, it's got all the good stuff with all the big names. Let's start at Harvard with the Alpha, the Omega, George Daly. So he had a study a while back about five factors that would reprogram or program and directly differentiate ES cells, or pluripotent stem cells, into hematopoietic progenitor cells. And it was a pretty big deal in Nature's Story. So in this story, Daly and his group, they've kind of elaborated on that to understand what are the limitations for engraftment. How come it's so hard to get a bona fide hematopoietic stem cell from pluripotent stem cells? What are the mechanisms that underlie the potency and engraftability and lineage potential of hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells that come from pluripotent stem cells, both in vitro as well as in vivo in a mouse? And in this study, they kind of elucidated the role of EZH1. Okay, so let me just step back. EZH1, it's this epigenetic modifier that specifically it methylates the lysine 27 and the histone 3, you know, H3K7. It methylates that, and that causes silencing of gene expression. So this is pretty much a dampener. And the hypothesis going into this story by Daly's group was that the reason why the hematopoietic fraction from pluripotent stem cells doesn't engraft is because they're limited. The gene expression is limited, but specifically genes that are under the purview of EZH1 or another epigenetic modifier. So they took their system where they guide the pluripotent stem cells into these hematopoietic cells, but they did a screen within that protocol of 20 epigenetic modifiers at that were knocked down by shRNA. So they eliminated these epigenetic modifiers one by one and then looked how that changed the lineage potential. And what they found is when they knocked down EZH1, they were able to get much broader lineage potential. You got more progenitor cell function in these in vitro kind of colony forming unit assays. And add to that, they showed that if you knocked out the factor EZH1, or if you had a heterozygote knockout or a homozygote knockout, uh, actually didn't work, but if you diminished the function, let's say, of EZH1 by doing a heterozygote knockout in mice, you got this precocious engraftment of the hematopoietic progenitors. You got cells within compartments that normally don't engraft and show progenitor stem function, like in the yolk sac, you got them to work. So it seems like they found this factor, EZH1, that seems to be putting the brakes on hematopoietic repopulation and engraftment. And the important implication there is that if we can chip away at the factors that are restricting the hematopoietic potential in the pluripotent stem cell derivatives, we may be able to get a bona fide engraftable cell. I will say, Kiki, mm -hmm. that the one major shortcoming in this story is that they didn't really get there. They didn't show that EZH1 knockdown was able to kind of precipitate a engraftable IPSC 
derived hematopoietic progenitor. So they didn't really get the brass ring that they were shooting for, but maybe a step along the way. But a step along the way in George Daly Lab gets you a nature paper. So congratulations to him and his group. <laughs> yeah. A significant step forward. I don't want to... You know, it's all these steps. It's the, it's the whole science sits on the shoulders of giants. What we know now is because of steps like these in the past, and this is going to get to that brass ring eventually. It is. We will get there. George Daly, like I said, the alpha, and we're going to get to the omega. He's going to finish this game, but not without help. You know, we got a lot of other stories. Another one out of Harvard here. I mean, is there a good story that doesn't come out of Harvard? Yes, there is, and I'll get to it. But this one is out of Harvard, out of David Mooney's group. And this is a more applied therapeutic story. It's also about the blood, though. And I think this has tremendous potential, not just this theoretical, if we could get a hematopoietic stem cell idea, but actually stuff that's on the ground right now. And what I'm talking about is this kind of therapeutic application of T-cells, maybe known as CAR-T therapy or adaptive immune. There's all kinds of names for it, and it takes many forms. But the bottom line is you're using your own immune system and programming it so that the T-cells become smart bombs that go and attack a cancer. And it's been showing remarkable kind of revolutionary rates of, uh, you know, cures. We'll see if they're really lasting, and then studies are still ongoing, but it's a really revolutionary advance. But the problem with using T-cells therapeutically at all, you got to get them out of the patient, right, and then expand them. And this has been a real obstacle. You get a really low expansion rate, and the cells you get have limited functionality. So there's this major impetus to create a platform where you can draw cells out progenitors and expand the T-cell fraction in a way that's specific, that's programming them to become cells that will then attack your target. And David Mooney's group has come up with a really good method. They have this kind of ex vivo lipid bilayer, okay? And the lipid bilayer mimics the molecular function of antigen-presenting cells, and it presents these membrane-bound cues. They're bound to this lipid bilayer. They have these cues that stimulate the progenitor cells to become T cells, but also embedded within this lipid bilayer there are these micro rods that have this kind of slow release of paracrine cues that also amplify the growth and expansion of the T-cell progenitors and then makes them grow pretty much and makes you get a lot of them and maintain their functionality. So in this kind of two-hit methodology here, they've got a robust means of creating expansion of antigen-specific cytotoxic T-cells, which are really relatively rare. And these are the, the real business end of these CAR-T therapies. And specifically within the context of a CAR-T therapy, they found they were able to get more than five-fold expansion of these CAR-T type cells that they're using in therapies. And, you know, five-fold may not seem like a lot, but just think of it in terms of the cancer. We have a therapy here that's working, you know, very well. If we could make five times more of the cells, I think... We could have more potent therapies, and also we may be able to tackle some tumors that may have been a little bit more resistant to this type of therapy, namely solid tumors, which would open the door to pretty much curing cancer and mass. So this is a, a really important technical advance out of Harvard, and God knows it's going to be David Mooney and George Daly. They're going to be together counting their money one day <laughs> and curing people, and I couldn't wish for more deserving people. So. Great job out of Harvard and the East Coast, guys. I'm proud of you. 
I've been talking about cancer research and the promise of a cure for cancer for over a decade now on various podcasts and research. And I mean, this is the closest we've gotten yet. And this kind of advancement in the technology is just going to make it more efficient, better. Yeah, I, I have such great hopes for this. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, the people underestimate how far we've come with cancer. And if, if anything, this is kind of the crown jewel. I think we're very, very close. Mm -hmm. All right. So that's the East Coast. We're going west now. This is a, a story out of Juan Carlos Ispizua Belmonte, our old friend. We've interviewed some people from his lab. It's, he's always doing something new, something crazy, um, using the most advanced technologies, making great strides. And in this one, he's kind of applying an aggregate of that what's been building in the field of CRISPR, okay? So just to summarize basically the succession of technologies, the idea with CRISPR is you can have this guide RNAs that kind of home in on a specific sequence, right? And then it brings this Cas9 enzyme, which will nick the DNA, okay? That's the baseline approach. And this has been augmented over, you know, months, really, since uh, its inception and many, many times, many innovations I, one of the near successive innovations following the implementation of CRISPR and Cas9 was you would make a dead Cas9 so that the enzymatic function was restricted. And in this way, you could home the Cas9 to a site in the DNA, but it wouldn't nick it. It would just sit there. And by sitting there, it could interfere with transcription of whatever the locus is. So you could use this as kind of a way of turning off genes just by using homing something to a locus and shutting down whatever transcriptional activity is there. Then the next progression to that was to take the Cas9 and have a dead Cas9 that wouldn't nick the DNA, you know, wouldn't provide that liability of oncogenesis and mutation, and would, was also fused to a transcriptional activation domain, okay? So this, you could home something to a locus where there was a gene that was presumably not expressed, and you could bring to that site this transcriptional activation domain that caused it to be expressed, okay? So merely without introducing any genomic information, just by having the thing sit on a site, you could cause a gene that wasn't being expressed to be expressed, okay? And this is where Juan Carlos and his group comes in, all right? This approach wasn't really that effective, so it was limited to a kind of in vitro approach. It could be done theoretically, but not robustly enough to actually have a a real phenotype in kind of a in an in vivo context. And Belmonte's group, what they did is they they turned the corner on that. They made a better version. They integrated it, all these components into a adenoviral vector, allowing for delivery in vivo. And in typical fashion, it wasn't enough to address one disease. The group went after three specific diseases. They were able to ameliorate phenotypes due to acute kidney injury. Duchenne's muscular dystrophy or type 1 diabetes. So they have like this acute kind of injury context. They have this genetic disease and degeneration context, and they have this autoimmune. They just pretty much ran the whole gamut and showed that this technology was so robust, they were able to modulate gene expression in a mouse in vivo. And ultimately then they exerted this approach to pretty much like cure DMD, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, are seriously ameliorate the phenotype, causing expression of eutrophin in the actual genome of the mouse. So I think more than any other study, this one consolidated a novel technical approach. It took all the technologies that came before and assembled them into a really practical means of 
epigenetically modifying the cell to cause gene expression that normally wouldn't be present. So another landmark study by Juan Carlos at Salk on the West Coast doing it. Yeah, West Coast. West, West, (laughs) y'all. Yeah, that's that's great. But, I mean, curing things in mice again. I know, I know. But listen, I think this is a this is interesting to me because yeah. it's one of those, like, yes, they've proven it in mice. But, I, I, I mean, the, as fast as this guy moves and his group moves, yeah. they're doing something. They're doing yeah. something with that CERN money or something in, in Spain where he has his satellite, where he does all his black ops. They're doing something crazy. And we're going to be talking about it probably in a couple weeks. I hope so. But first... I'm talking about his uh, compatriot at the Gladstone, Shen Ding. So Shen Ding was famous for like small molecule approaches. Anything anybody had to do with genes and they had to cause lenti or whatever to manipulate, Shen Ding would come up with a cocktail that he could just, you know, pharmacologically mediate whatever end that you wanted. Maybe not any, but he, he made pretty amazing strides. And now he's exerting his amazing skill set and the talents of his group to applying CRISPR for reprogramming. You know, the holy grail maybe was a cocktail, a drug, you know, regimen you could just add to cells to reprogram them. That's what they've been going after. I'm sure Shending's working on that too. But CRISPR and this kind of approach that we just talked about out of Belmonte's group provides an alternative approach, which is to just activate the endogenous OCT4. You know, in your skin cells, it's turned off. SOX, OXIM, all those, KLF4, OCT4. These are all down in somatic cells, and you get an exogenous source of expression in these genes. You reprogram the cell, right? But what about the genes that are there? They're silenced. So Shending took an approach. They said, let's take this CRISPR. Let's take this transactivating type approach that we just described out of SALT, and let's home in on they picked SOX and OCT, and they just pretty much delivered this transcriptional activation approach to the endogenous locus that was silenced. They epigenetically modified it so that it would be expressed. And bottom line is they cause these silenced genes to be re-expressed in embryonic fibroblasts, and by re-expressing the endogenous loci, they cause reprogramming. So this is a potent, transient, non-integrative approach to reprogramming cells. It seems like all the chips are falling into place for us to really make great strides therapeutically. We can reprogram cells without a footprint. We can cause gene expression to ameliorate disease. We're generating hematopoietic stem progenitors. It's a real cornucopia of great science, east, west, coast. You know, the rap game really created a lot of antipathy between the east and west coast. We need to come together, people, not only in rap, in science and reprogramming. In stem cells. Oh, yeah. Let's bring it all together. I mean, it's going to be collaborations between these different groups, the information that everyone brings to the table that's going to bring the biggest discoveries in the end. But, man. The only way. It's the only way. Nobody can do it alone anymore. You know, science is too big. Oh, my gosh, it is. <laughs> oh, but that does it for the roundup. But before we get to the interview this week, we are going to remind listeners about extracellular matrix news. Perhaps surprisingly, this is one of the most widely read newsletters of the 20 weekly science newsletters that are published by Connexon. ECM, extracellular matrix news, is sent out for free 
every week to researchers around the world who are interested in ECM biology. You can keep current with the latest research, news, events, and jobs that are related to extracellular matrix research at extracellularmatrixnews.com. Pretty simple. If you're interested, extracellularmatrixnews.com. The Stem Cell Podcast and Stem Cell Technologies are very pleased to welcome our guest today, Dr. Kapil Bharti. He's a principal investigator at the National Eye Institute at NIH. Kapil's work involves performing translational research on degenerative eye diseases using induced pluripotent stem cell technology. Kapil's group uses this technology to develop in vitro disease models to study patient-specific disease processes, to set up high-throughput drug screens, and to develop cell-based therapy for retinal degenerative diseases. Here to discuss his work and recent publication, Dr. Kapil Bharti. Thank you so much for joining us on the Stem Cell Podcast today. It's my pleasure. So just to get started, we talked a little bit about your recent paper in our last episode, but can you tell our audience a little bit more detail about you and the focus of your work? So my lab really focuses on uh, retinal degenerative diseases that uh, come from uh, tissue called the pigment epithelium, retinal pigment epithelium that's located in the back of the eye. And this tissue all its life does provide support functions to the photoreceptors that are located adjacent to this tissue. Photoreceptors and uh, pigment epithelium, short RPE, are kind of in a hand-to-glove relationship and the apical structures is kind of a small uh, microtubules-like structures on the apical side of RPE that are in direct contact, physical contact with photoreceptors, through which RPE cells help photoreceptors perform all their functions. And what happens in many cases, many diseases, is that these cells either start to, RPE cells either start to dysfunction or die off. As a result, photoreceptors start to die off. So, and of course, when photoreceptors start to die, uh, people start to lose vision. In worst cases, it leads to blindness. And one of the well, most well-known example is macular degeneration. So my lab uses, combines the iPSL technology with genetics and all these in vitro models to study how these diseases happen in a dish, how these diseases start at the RPE level, and at the same time, also try to develop uh, therapies, both drug-based therapies and cell therapies for such diseases. The paper that we recently published, the idea kind of came from, we have been trying to do what is called IND enabling studies. IND is investigational new drug application for a phase one trial to transplant autologous iPS-derived RP cells back into macular degeneration patients. And we were trying to make, for the past few years, fully mature and functional RPE cells from iPS cells so that we can transplant them and the cells would, so to speak, hit the ground running. As you might be well aware that it's a known um, phenomenon that, especially from iPS cells, it's not easy to make mature cell types. So we have been struggling around this topic, and that's when we kind of stumbled upon this observation that in RPE cells, induction of primary cilium was coincidental with how the cells, when the cells were maturing. And this was based on primary cell culture, human primary RP cell culture. So we kind of really expanded beyond that observation, and that's what the whole paper is about. We demonstrated that the primary cilium is indeed important in RP maturation and making fully functional RP cells, both in patient stem cells, in iPS-derived RP cells, and in mouse models, and, using a, and also using a patient 
RPS cell line that had a mutation in one of the cilia genes leading to ciliopathy, we show that RPS cells do not mature. So this led to kind of a protocol that led, made us to make mature, fully mature and functional RPS cells by just adding some chemicals in our differentiation product media to make fully mature and functional RPS cells. So kind of it served two purposes. Uh, it first of all helped us understand how these cells mature to really understand more uh, biology of the cells. It helped us understand more of how ciliopathy happens in patients. Ciliopathy patients, one of the biggest or most penetrant phenotype in those patients is retinal degeneration. And this paper kind of highlights that it's likely because not just that they have defects in photoreceptors, they also have defects in the RPE. And then finally, we were able to come up with a protocol that provides us uh, fully functional cells for transplantation in patients. We're going to circle back around to this. I don't want to derail you because I think we got to go in a bit more detail about all the many innovations and implications of your study, both basic and therapeutic. But I just want to step back and talk about the eye in general and stem cells. We talk a lot about the eye. It seems almost disproportionately to the kind of, you know, diseases, the major causes of morbidity and mortality in the developed world. Why is it that the eye is so prominent in this kind of front wave of, of therapeutic applications of cell-based therapies. Excellent point. And I think there are multiple reasons. One is kind of you already hinted towards that. Why are there so many diseases that just affect the eye? And I think the reason is there are many genes that have quote-unquote unique function only in the eye and they're not as important in other tissues. So the mutation in those do not affect the survival per se, but affect the eyes. If you think about evolutionary, on an evolutionary scale, these people would, would have died thousands of years ago because of just mutations in genes that affect their eyesight. But now, because of all these advanced technologies, these people survive because of all societies is able to manage healthcare burden of such people. But then those mutations are accumulating. So we, that's why we see more and more eye diseases, more mutations affecting uh, vision and uh, eye conditions. Now, why the eye has been at the forefront of really all kind of technological advances, both stem cells, gene therapy. Again, I think many reasons. First of all, there are such conditions there's, for which there's no other comorbid condition in any other organ. So you would think that if you corrected the eye, you would really improve the life of those patients, improve, improve their lifestyle, overall uh, quality of life. And at the same time, because eye is so accessible, right? So you can do an injection in the back of the eye, inject a gene therapy vector, and be able to see what the cells are doing in response to the gene therapy vector. And all of those imaging techniques are non-invasive. And we can transplant uh, cells. We do it all the time in rats and in pig models. And we can see, we can follow those cells for weeks to come. You cannot do that in any other organ easily. So I think those really help advanced. So accessibility in terms of both surgical procedure and imaging is really, I think, one of the key driving force that such technologies are happening in the eye first than in any other organ. I'd love to know a bit about the history of determining the importance of the RPE, the retinal pigment epithelium in these degenerative diseases. At what point did uh, you and other researchers really realize that this support tissue was part of the problem? That goes back to, I think, before I was born. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think really some of the pioneering work on this has been done in uh, animals like 
frogs, perhaps even in cats, you know, like decades, four or five decades ago. If you think on, again, on an evolutionary scale, it's thought that even the smallest test organism we know has what is called a light spot so that they can detect in which direction the light is coming from. And there's some larvas which whose smallest possible uh, state is like a single cell larva. And they have a light spot so they can tell uh, where the light is coming from. Interestingly, right next to that light spot is a pigment spot. So the association of pigment and light sensing is goes back to millions of years ago. So, you know, you can go back to 500 million, perhaps even a billion years ago, that when these things started co-evolving. And at that time, it was just a pigment screen for the light sensing cell or light sensing spot that if an organism that is single cell and the light shines on it, if there was no screen, it would never know which direction the light was coming from. So they would not be able to go away or towards the light. So now based on that pigment screen, it gave them a big evolutionary advantage to know the direction of light. So that pigment spot over time kept evolving and became the pigment epithelium. And it not just had that screen function that it, of course, started with, it kept acquiring additional function. And one of the first function that people saw in mammalian RPE, which was critical, was replenishment of visual pigment. So, you know, the photoreceptors sense light based on because they have visual pigment in them. This is rhodopsin or opsin proteins coupled to retinal chromophores. And people realized that those retinal chromophores are being supplied by RPE cells. And you know, they isolated RPE cells from frogs and other mammals and saw that these cells had the capacity to make those visual pigments. And then from there, it kept expanding. They realized that these cells phagocytose, worn out outer segments, and they secrete cytokines to help promote the health of photoreceptors and the back of the eye. So really, this is like decades of momentous work in many different animal species that led to the understanding that RP is really fundamentally important for maintenance of health and functional integrity of photoreceptors. And now you've extended that and maybe gone to an underlying mechanism based in the cilia, right? So could you maybe talk about functionally, I always, and maybe others, associate cilia with like motility, maybe setting up currents within microenvironments. What is the actual, you know, functional relevance of the cilia in the RPE, do you think? So there are two types of cilia. One is called the motile cilia and one is called the primary cilia. And what you are uh, referring to is a motile cilia that is present in the lung epithelium, which everyone understands is important in keeping bacteria and viruses out of our uh, respiratory tract. So they beat in certain orientation to keep uh, out towards outwards to keep those bugs out. But primary cilia actually has gained a lot of interest in the past several years because it seems like that pretty much every somatic cell at some stage of their development or differentiation expresses a primary cilium. And which is literally like, you know, one membrane appendage with nine duplets of microtubules in it. And people have uncovered many different roles of primary cilia. They have realized that these, in many cell types, they work as a signaling hub, cellular signaling hub. So they control, they regulate many different signaling pathways. One of the key ones known are sonic hedgehog and calcium and, and wind. And the other thing that you refer to is calcium signaling, which also regulates some kind of a current wave in some cells. We kind of had seen primary cilia every time we kind of mature these cells and we noticed that primary cilia come up around the same time. So we wanted to really see why is that happening? Is it just a coincidental finding or does cilia have any role in it in the maturation process? 
that's when we started to kind of expand uh, beyond what we already knew about primary cilium and RP maturation. So we found mice that had mutation in cilia genes and started to look at the RPE. So far, people had ignored RPE cells in these mice because photoreceptors have a massive developmental defect in these animals. So everyone focused on photoreceptors. So we said, let's just look at the RPE, which actually differentiates before the photoreceptors do. So it has an implication on photoreceptor differentiation as well. So we looked at these animals, and at the same time, because we were doing, and I think this is all because it's the right time. There were techniques available. You know, we were making RP cells from human iPS cells. So we had that tool in our hand on which we could add any chemical and ask what the chemical was doing. We could add any SHRNA and knock down a gene and ask what those genes were doing. So we started doing those experiments. There are paper published. People have shown some chemicals like PG2 and aphidicolin that enhance ciliogenesis. There are other chemicals known HPEI4, which suppresses ciliogenesis or cilia function, I should say. So we started testing what these chemicals are doing. And every time we added the chemicals, coincidental again with ciliogenesis, RP functions would improve. And you know, we are an RPE cell biology lab. We can test those functions to depth. And then that's, so when all of this was happening, we started going into the details of is it really ciliogenesis controlling maturation? So we went downstream and realized that, yes, it was through regulation of canonical wind pathway, which people have shown for years that is important for RPE development and differentiation. But what we found is once the cells are differentiated, actually the canonical wind pathway has to be actively turned off for the cells to fully mature. And that's what primary cilium does. And we identified the interaction proteins how it turns off beta-catenin, one of the main drivers of canonical wind signaling. Once we had the observation, it went further downstream of that observation to really understand how this was happening in these cells. So how can this information be used moving forward? Like, what are the implications for actual treatment of macular degeneration and the use of these pluripotent stem cells in actual transplantation? Just for clinical application, I think this, for us, this has been fundamentally important because four years ago, we got a grant from the NIH director to take iPS cells into a phase one clinical trial. And we have been preparing for this trial for the four years, for the past four years. And the trial is making autologous iPS cells for macular degeneration patients and making an RPE patch and transplanting that patch back into patients. So for that, making of that batch, we use now this protocol of fully differentiating cells using induction of primary cilium. It's one of the main step of our protocol. Once we go from patient's blood to reprogramming iPS cells and take making those iPS cells into RP progenitors, and then we put those progenitors onto a biodegradable patch, and we start maturing them onto this patch using primary cilium induction. So the idea is once we transplant those uh, patches into patients, because it's an intact monolayer that we have already tested is functional, the cells would just immediately start functioning inside the eye and replace the lost function, lost activity and lost function because the, the endogenous the host RPE has already atrophied. And it gives us more confidence because these cells are fully mature, fully differentiated, they have completely exited the cell cycle, they won't be proliferating once they go in, they won't go undergo rogue proliferation and lead to some weird tissue formation in the eye. So that gives us more confidence that the cells will be safe and absolutely more functional, definitely. First, let me say congratulations on being, you know, among the first to embark on one of these major steps for iPS cell therapy. 
It's an amazing opportunity for you, and it faces so many challenges. What is it like, I mean, specifically, I guess, in the kind of the shifting landscape? Let's take, for example, the approach in Japan. They're kind of moving away from that patient-specific to kind of a bank. Like, when you've invested so much time into this and you have your approach, is it, like, feasible, practical even, to maybe shift some of your protocols in order to maybe account for some of the, I guess, cautionary notes that are sounding globally on these patient-specific IPS cells? Or how do you manage something in such an evolving landscape? How do you, with trials that take so long to put together, it must be amazingly challenging, not to mention expensive. So can you speak to that? Yes. So I'll say to that, that once the protocols locked in, you can't change them. I mean, you can't change them, but you lose three, four years and millions of dollars. So we have been, as I said, we have been preparing for the past four years. And fortunately, the protocols that we have developed have really given us uh, IPS cells that are actually safe and don't acquire any oncogenic mutations during the reprogramming process. I was lucky that uh, people from Japan, I was closely interacting with them for the past several years. So I knew what were the issues they were encountering. So we tried to change our manufacturing process from the very beginning. We instituted some things that were not available to them at that time, just because, you know, it's an evolving technology, as you said. So we think because of those changes that we instituted in our manufacturing process, that has led to IPS cells that are safe. And uh, hopefully these cells will continue to maintain that safety profile that genomically is stable. And same is true for now this maturation protocols because it was all happening at the same time in the lab. You know, the research part of the lab had to be constantly talking to the kind of the people who are doing GMP and clinical grade stuff. And they were interestingly learning from each other. Research people were learning how to do more reproducible science because, you know, in GMP, you don't have the luxury of repeating your experiment. You do a run based on a batch record, and if it fails, you have to explain and justify why it failed. And you can start again, but you have to follow those exact SOPs. Whereas in research, people often kind of have a leeway around, right? For me, this was an amazing experience because the research people learned that, oh, look, there's an advantage of making SOPs that makes our experiments more reproducible. Whereas uh, the clinical manufacturing people were saying, oh, oh, look, they found a protocol how to mature them better. Let's implement that while we can before we have finalized the SOPs and, and have made cells for preclinical testing. So it, it, it really was a wonderful or still continues to be a wonderful experience going back and forth. And we have implemented, I think, as many possible, quote unquote, the best possible protocols to go forward with these cells. So besides safety, what are the specific outcome measures in the patient selection? How are you choosing your patients and what are you hoping to gain here? For a phase one trial, I would say that nothing else except safety. But, you know, in the long term, we do all hope that we see some efficacy measures. So one of the key things we're looking for is because these are autologous patches, would they integrate in the back of the eye for the long term for months and years to come? So that's one key thing. And we can do that again in the eye easily by imaging, just non-invasive imaging. We can follow the area that was transplanted and see if the transplanted cells stay there in that area based on this imaging techniques. In the early phases of the trial, we'd look for whether the disease progresses further or does it halt. And that's, I think, if it halts, that itself is a victory. And I think as we move to later stages of the trial, the goal would be to do the transplantation at a relatively early stage of disease so the disease doesn't get that worse. 
But keep in mind, you know, in, in macular degeneration, it's the photoreceptors that die in advanced stages after the RP cells die. So we can only save the remaining photoreceptors by transplanting an RP patch. If the photoreceptors are gone, there's nothing we can do about this in those patients. So there the goal would be to transplant a 3D photoreceptor RPE patch that we and others are working on, but that's, I think, years away. But right now, the, my goal is to do a phase one trial with at least 10, 12 patients where we can really establish a safety profile of IPSC derivatives and really lay down the kind of a path, a regulatory path, how to do a phase one trial with IPS cells and take it from there. Is one of the big questions here, you know, you're putting in a patch potentially that will replace deteriorated RPEs, but does that actually halt the disease or the conditions that actually led to that deterioration in the first place? Again, great point. We hope that it will halt disease progression. At least that's a kind of a indication we get from the animal models where we have tested this patch. Whether it halts the condition that led to disease is a very interesting point because AMD is thought to be an age-induced inflammatory condition where the cells eventually die off. Whether that inflammation would keep progressing or whether the new young cells that we put in will somehow put a halt to that inflammation as well, I think that's what that's to be seen. In a normal person, AMD takes somewhere around 60 to 80 years to onset. So if we get a few years of additional life to those cells, I think we should be fine. I don't expect them to give another 60 years and, you know, we can't even see that. I'm hoping that we get two to five years, 10 years max. That would be fantastic if these cells can last. And so far, so what we have also been doing is as we make these clinical grade IPS derived RP cells from AMD patients, we are testing them in the lab in the research part of the lab now to see is there anything wrong with those cells because these are from AMD patients. And the best we can tell these cells are just fine. They behave like healthy individual cells. And that's not a surprise because AMD is considered like a disease in which some risk alleles interact with the environment, with, with your lifestyle, with the eating habits, and how much you smoke, and BMI, and things like that to give that, to lead to that disease. Whether you wear a necktie. No. <laughs> yeah. Right. How much broccoli do you eat? How much fish do you eat? And those things matter. And since we have made uh, younger, quote-unquote, cells, which have a clean epigenetic profile, a healthy epigenetic profile, they, we don't expect them to behave like disease cells, and they do not. On this kind of similar note, you kind of alluded to this earlier about disease modeling. You know, a lot of blindness is well, the pathology underlying these conditions is well described. Is there application of that for understanding kind of unknown causes of blindness? Do you get patients in there, they have kind of degeneration of their eyesight, and you have an IPS approach to figuring out the molecular basis or anything like that? Yes, I think so. I mean, celiopathy, that one example we published in this paper, is a little bit of that example, right? So no one had thought that retinal degeneration in celiopathy patients was also because of defects in the RPE. It was well established in the field that it's a photoreceptor-related retinal degeneration. And hence, we, here we show that, no, the RP is also defective. In fact, RP defects start before photoreceptor defects start. So that's one example to what you're talking about. Yes, there are many cases we have of actually of patients, and one of my clinician colleagues has identified 
some patients where the the fovea, which is the central part of our vision with the most highest acuity part of our, our vision, is not forming properly in those patients. And it's not clear what genetic mutation there is and what defects have led to that. So we are embarking on a project uh, together with him to make iPS cells from that patient to his doing the genetics. We're probably going to do a whole genome sequencing and then from there see what is wrong with that uh, at, the, at the genetic level. But then how did that lead to no development of fovea in the eye of those patients? I think that's, that would be an interesting project. Absolutely. I love that uh, you mentioned earlier, you're working on more complex tissues where the photoreceptor and the RPE in combination to be potentially transplanted. There's a lot of research in you know, various tissue fields looking at now complex tissues, not just single cell types. And I think what your work is doing, like focusing on the cilia, focusing on the RPE cells, focusing on the photoreceptors, has this changed the way that you are approaching your work moving forward, understanding how developmentally the tissue works as a complex? Absolutely. You know as good as everybody else that you know diseases happen at organ and tissue level. They start at the cellular level, but they really happen because of interaction between different cell types of different tissues. And especially uh, all these retinal region degenerative diseases is a wonderful example because they do happen because of interaction between photoreceptors, RPE cells, and the choroidal blood supply. So we realized that. And so we thought, okay, so we want to be able to build this entire tissue now. So we started from kind of the bottom-up approach to see have the proper foundation. So what we did is, because we had made this RPE patch so well because of this cell therapy project, on a biodegradable scaffold, we thought we could just add a blood supply to this. So we, what we do is we flip the patch upside down and we bioprint, 3D print, 3D bioprint endothelial cells made from same patient's iPS cells mixed in hydrogel. And that allowed us to make blood vessels in the back of that RP patch, very similar to how the choroidal vessels look like. That manuscript is under preparation. We hope to put it out soon. And what we noticed is that as the cells became formed vessels, the two cell types, RPE and the rest endothelial cells, started to interact. Like you said, you know, how the two tissues co-developed. I'll give you an example. Choroidal vessels have, are known to have something called fenestration. So these are like tiny holes, 60 to 100 nanometer holes in the membrane of endothelial cells that allow for the flow of, easy flow of macromolecules from blood into the RPE, from RPE to the retina. And not just the eye, the kidney, and few other organs have fenestration in their vessels, the organs that require flow of macromolecules from blood into the tissue. It's not really well known how these fenestrations have come about, how they develop, and what happens. When we co-made RPE and, and choroidal blood supply in our tissues in a dish, we, the first thing we ask is, do they become fenestrated? And sure enough, they do become fenestrated. And the fenestration happened to be dependent on the presence of RP cells. If we don't grow RP on the other side, they don't become fenestrated. So now this gives you a wonderful model to developmentally study. How does fenestration happen? How does fenestration come about? But then it's, it doesn't end there because there are many drugs that are given to uh, cancer patients and many like simple antibiotics that we all take at some point they have side effect in the eye. And to do that, they have to actually cross that fenestration mixed with probably some 
proteins from the blood and they affect the RPE or the effect of receptors, which leads to the side effects. So now it gives us a way to study toxicity of those drugs using such models. We kind of always try to go to the basic science, see how does it develop, how did it start, but then what is the clinical application of this? So all my colleagues here at the NEI clinic who see such patients that have side effects and the drug toxicity effects in the eye based on anti-cancer and other drugs, they are very excited about this model because for the first time we can now test how do these drugs go from the bloodstream into the eye and, and what do they do? What cell type do they affect? Wow. So it looks like you're building an increasingly complex picture uh, using all kinds of mechanisms here. One thing that's unique, I think, about your career, your uh, position there is at the NIH, right? And I guess a lot of uh, scientists in academia, maybe I'm shifting gears a little bit, but just for our listeners, I, for one, have always been interested in how it works at the NIH. You know, I have these fantasies. There's the principal investigators at the NIH are sat, sitting on top of a war chest filled with billions of dollars of funding, but of course that's not true. Buckets of money. <laughs> buckets, <laughs> buckets. And they're just giving it away over there. But the reality is clearly not that. And But also maybe for the postdoc experience, yeah. the people in your lab, maybe you could give a little bit of a window of what it's like for you at the NIH, what it's like to you know, be trained as a scientist at the NIH, advantages, maybe disadvantages if there are any. I think that's, again, a very interesting point to compare kind of intramural NIH people to outside. Let me set the record straight. As a tenure track investigator that I am, for instance, we have equivalent of almost one R01 that any extramural investigator also gets when they apply to. And that's what we have for our research projects in the lab. And unfortunately for us, we cannot even apply for a second R01 or an R24 or some other grant. We don't have any other granting mechanism that can increase our funding capacity. So having said that, we do have the opportunity every once in a while to apply for innovation awards through the NIH director. And this was uh, luckily the first thing I did when I started my lab is there was an opportunity to apply for translational award to take iPS cells into clinic, which is what we applied and got. And this was a significant chunk of money although still not enough to do IND-enabling studies for a phase one trial. So I had, I had a big support from my institute. So that is what actually led to big, massive uh, amount of innovation in the past four years, uh, at least in my group, because we had those resources and we had that kind of, we had to do it to finish that project to get to the IND. And then uh, really that helped kind of jumpstart a lot of things in the lab. And then this 3D project that I'm talking about, we got that started through a grant I got from the DOD. That's the, another outside grant we can apply to where they were interested in making this 3D tissue to help study combat-related eye injuries. And I, there I proposed to make choroid, RPE, and, and the retina. And fortunately, you know, we got the money and we were more or less successful to get, bringing it to this stage. Running of a lab and postdoc life is quite different at NIH than outside. Running of a lab is different in the sense that we have a lot of red tape that we have to all the time deal with. There's a lot of restrictions on us, actually it's completely restricted, that we cannot accept any funds for any consulting we do or any honorarium for any talks we do. I consult with companies and I give talks, but I always do it free of charge and on my own time. I'm not supposed to be doing it during nine to five. Postdoc life is different because I think postdocs have actually less challenges in the sense that 
often they're not required to write their own grants, whereas in outside world, often postdocs are required to write their own grants. And sometimes I feel that's a little bit affecting their training. So what I have implemented in my lab is that every postdoc has to write some grants. And there's always opportunities to write small supplemental grants, you know, 10,000 here or there. So I make sure that they, all of them do that just to get trained in that process. It's a very important process if you're going to continue in your scientific career. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I, even though they may not have, they may not be interested, no, I don't care. This is important for your career. You have to write a grant. You get it or not, that's a different issue. And we have been lucky, actually. Uh, one of my postdocs got a small supplemental grant, so that's great. So he has that $50,000 supporting his project, and others are continuing to write this. But other than that, I think it's, to me, this is a wonderful environment for postdocs because the amount of resources we have access to in terms of core facilities and almost 1,100 different expertise in terms of lab space on the campus. You think of a new idea and you know something that you need for your lab, I'm sure there's somebody on the campus who's doing it. So all you have to do is pick up a phone and call and say, do you mind helping us with this? And people are always generous. So I think that is a big advantage that postdocs could use to propel the projects forward and get them published in good journals faster. And then there's you know about 4,000 postdocs to interact with, and there's career seminars for them to you know think of different career options if they don't don't want to go into academic science. If they don't, if they want to go into academic sciences, their training process for writing grants, writing papers, running a lab. So all of those resources are available. I think the, those are fantastic resources. And I can say that because I was a postdoc here myself a few years back, and I made good use of those resources. Yeah, it's taking advantage of what you have in front of you that can allow you to have a greater advantage as you move forward. Certainly, if you just let those resources sit there, <laughs> there's no benefit. Exactly. Is there anything else you'd like to mention to our audience about either your research or your experiences as a scientist before we end our interview? If you couldn't save, tell for na until now, I'm going to say it. I'm so excited to be doing all of this. You know, this was kind of, for me, a dream come true to be able to do all of these things. And I'm excited that I have really one of the best teams. They take care of all these complicated experiments from making things from research to GMP grades to making things 3D cultures and they do it well and yet they find time for happy hours so i'm very really <laughs> thankful to them yeah happy hour is important they actually collaborate during the time every once in a while i would join and i'll see they're sitting with the beer and discussing science and that's the best part i want to thank my team actually for really making this happen making such a paper uh, published and bringing us close to a, a clinical trial thank you so much for your time today it's been just a joy speaking with you Thank you. It was fun. All right, Kiki, that was Dr. Kapil Bharti. He's really doing great work. What a charming guy. I mean, I'm not lying. I would go back to being a postdoc. I didn't love my postdoc. It was gruesome. But being in his group sounds like it'd be a lot of fun. And there's something about the NIH, I think, that you know most academic scientists can't really approach, or maybe not everyone in the NIH, but the resources they have, I think, to do big work, to do these kind of, you know, applied therapeutic phase one trials, it's, it's pretty cool. I think it is very cool. I mean, I had no idea 
the way that they were funded. I mean, how you get your job and you're basically, you've got an R1 grant right there, ready to go. And, you know, there are government internal grants that you can apply for, as he mentioned, but how, what a, what a fascinating environment. And it continues to be a stimulating academic environment. Like he said, with the people who are resources, also with the facilities that are resources, I'm jealous. <laughs> I don't, I'm like, if I go back into science, can I get a job at the NIH? <laughs> well, I don't know when this interview is going to come out, Kiki, but I have to say one downside, we didn't talk about it with Dr. Barry, but one, one downside maybe working yeah. for the NIH is this whole shutdown fiasco. I mean, I wonder how it's working out for him. You think he's going to be at work this week? Well, it all depends. I mean, it's, you know, how do, how is Congress getting along? Are they going to decide they're going to pass the budget? Or are they not? What are they doing? <sighs> Baited Politics. Breath. Well, this I'll is tell it. You, this, this is serious. And it's bring, it brings me to the, to the rant, okay? Yeah. We were talking about this in, in the government shutdown and how it, you know, applies. And I got to be honest, I, I'm sure that I'm very naive, and God knows the government does something important. But from where I'm sitting, what shutdown is what I got to say. The government's been shut down for a few days now. And by the time this comes out, it probably be working again, at least for the interim. But I got to say, I don't even know what we're missing here without the government. I think we're doing fine. What do you say, Keeks? I know. There are so many things in our day-to-day lives where I'm like, well, you know, I'll still be able to go to the grocery store. Buses are going to run in the city. Right. I'm going to be able, the internet's still going so I can still do this podcast. Um, You know, for me, day-to-day life, I guess will be fine. But then there are things like, oh my gosh, it's flu season. Flu season has apparently is peaking right now. And the organization within the government who tracks the (laughs) epidemiology of things like the flu is shut down. They're sleeping in while we're all missing work. These nails. Yeah, we don't have a CDC. I mean, I don't know. Are we going to get bombed by North Korea while we're in the middle of this? Oh, no. Well, we'll be caught with our pants down. You're right. I mean, obviously, government has a lot a lot to do. But it, from my, I'll tell you, a snow day blows up my life more than the government shut down. You know, my kids being yep. sick blows up my life more than the government shut down. Yep. Maybe the people at home could talk to us. I don't know about this as a rant. I'm not angry at anybody, but I'm curious. How is the government shut down affecting you or anybody? Let's talk about it, the scope of it. I'm sure it's not very narrow. The government is large after all. So let's let's hear about it, guys. What's yep. it doing to you? Yeah, from my perspective, I'm looking at the weather app and Thursday may be a snow day. Uh-oh. I, I don't need that in my life right now. <laughs> I am more concerned about that than uh, than the political vote at this point in time. I mean, bigger military. picture. Who needs the military? <sighs> I need those six hours. Man, people, I mean, there's the big picture, and then there's, what is this doing in my life right now? Not much. Maybe I'm just a little egotistical in the way that I'm thinking about things right now. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I want to know. Tell us. Tell us. Email us. I'll tell you one thing. I think you're bigger than government. I mean, seriously? Because you're a force. You are a force, Kiki. I've seen seen how you act. I've seen how you operate. That's right. We're going to keep you up and running, all right? We don't need to keep you shut down. (laughs) <laughs> There's no Kiki shutdown. Hashtag Kiki shutdown. Not happening. <laughs> we'll keep it going. 
Everyone, let us know. I'd love to hear about this. You can tweet to us at Stem Cell Podcast. You can email us, info at stemcellpodcast.com. Respond. Let us know if this shutdown is affecting you, how it does affect you. What are you thinking about it? Or just send us new rant ideas. And don't forget to take our survey. It's sitting there at stemcellpodcast.com, where our new website is, too. Yay. Yeah. All right, Dalen, we did it. This concludes another episode, episode 109 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Be sure to tune in for episode 110, everyone. I'm sure it will be wonderful.